You are listening to the In Her Eyes podcast. I am your host, Lynn Niehaus, episode 101. Hello, hello, my lovely friend, and welcome to the In Her Eyes podcast. I am your host, Lynn Niehaus, interior designer, artist, mama, scientist, color specialist, and space coach, here to help you navigate the beautiful messiness of raising strong, thriving daughters while you discover the path to a home that inspires you. You will learn to design gorgeous, peaceful spaces inside and out that you can be proud of and love coming home to. Each week, we will explore how individuality and practicality create the harmony our souls crave. Let's dive in, my dear, to all of our beautiful stuff. have a something a little different for you today which I'm really excited about and I know you're going to love. We have our first male guest on the In Her Eyes podcast. When I launched the podcast, I wanted voices to be heard. I wanted that relationship voice between mothers and daughters and it, it, so much of what we talk about is being heard hearing ourself learning to speak into your emotions your beliefs analyze them look at them stand up for yourself you know so many of these things are topics that we talk about even though this is a podcast about creating harmony within your environment. This episode is largely about creating harmony within your relationships. And today we're going to be talking about trust, building trust, creating trust. What is trust? Where does it come from? So you're going to love my guest, Daryl Stickle. He has a brand new book out called Building Trust. It is for leaders, but we all know that as moms, as women, as people who run a household, whether we're working inside the home or outside the home or building our own business, we're all leaders and we have that opportunity to lead with that foundational element of trust. So I know you're going to love this. I would love to know on the other side of this where you can jump over into the comments section on the In Her Eyes webpage and just let me know, is there any specific place where you struggle with trust or a place where trust comes easier? It's a little bit more fluid. I often find that when I struggle in one area, the easiest way to find a path through is to look at another area where something works better, something makes more sense to the way that my brain is processing it. And I can dig through those long held beliefs that might not necessarily be serving me anymore. But let's dive into this gorgeous conversation. Before we begin, I do want to give you a trigger warning. Daryl in his story does tell about 
being attacked as a teenager. So if this is something that might bother you, you can skip to the eight minute mark and avoid that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Her Eyes podcast. I have a rare treat for you today. Uh, We are having our first male guest on the podcast, and I'm so excited for you to meet him because Daryl Stickle is a expert on trust. And despite that he went to the my rival university, I am really excited to bring him here to, today. Um, he wrote his doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. Upon completion of his studies, Daryl worked for McKinsey and Company in their Toronto office, and Daryl founded Trust Unlimited in 2003. He's worked with senior executives from a broad range of industry all over the world. He served as faculty for Luxembourg School of Business and the Center for Effective Organizations at the University of Southern California. Daryl recently completed his book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Oh, I am I am so excited to dive into this topic with you because it is something that the climate that we're in right now, and, and I'm, I do really want to dive deep into the particular climate and the atmosphere that we're in, but first, can you just tell us your story? Can you just tell us how you ended up walking down this path to where you have become known as an expert on trust? Yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in a small town in Northern Canada. Um, about twelve to 13,000 people. We were at least an hour's drive from the next small town. Um, conditions could be quite harsh. You know, minus 40 was not unusual during the winters. And so you had to kind of pull together. There was a sense of community. And I learned that it was important that if you could help someone, you should. Mm. And so against that backdrop, uh, I grew up as a young man um playing hockey and uh being part of a larger community and and seeing how that unfolded um and i knew so i have cone dystrophy which is a hereditary retinal disorder i I knew i was going to go blind uh legally blind and so i had realized at a, a fairly young age that i had to train my brain to be able to think for a living and you know, I did well in school and and those kinds of things. And um, and then when I was 17, I was playing junior hockey, which was a fairly high level of hockey. Um, and I was attacked by a fan with a club. And um, he shattered my helmet, knocked me unconscious. Uh, afterwards, uh, I was pulled back onto the ice by my teammates, but one of the players from the other team grabbed me and, and proceeded to beat the living tar out of me. Um, and it was 1984. Uh, we, we didn't know much about concussions. And so all of a sudden I went from thinking I was going to think for a living to not being able to think at all. Oh, wow. I, I had the attention span of a fruit fly. You know, I just, I couldn't, I was sleeping all the time. I was struggling. 
And that experience taught me a greater level of empathy. I learned what it was like to feel helpless and to feel hopeless. And I went to school. I, I went to Grand Prairie College and, and uh, had several more concussions because I was still playing hockey. But um, I failed all my classes. And it was a real dark path for a bit. Um, and then I transferred to the University of Victoria and I started to slowly recover. And I would find myself sitting on the bus and some stranger would just come and sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard time. And for some reason, people just started to open up to me. And I wanted to understand what it was that was causing that. And so I thought about becoming a clinical psychologist. And I worked with troubled teens and families in crisis and street kids and worked on crisis lines and all of these things to hone those skills. And, and then partway through that experience, I realized that a lot of the families I was working with were really just doing the best they could. Mm. And even if I could see a path forward for them, they were just so stuck. And I thought this will drive me insane. And so I shifted into public administration and I was working in native land claims here in British Columbia. And they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over a hundred years? They should trust us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's a good question. That's, that's long-term disputes. That's irreconcilable differences. That's, that's the heart of some of the struggles we're having in the world. And so I ended up going to Duke um, at the business school there, I wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. And uh, I then went and worked for McKinsey and Company, and, and they said, "Well, you got great client hands. Let's send you to the worst places possible." Yeah, that's always the case, isn't it? Yeah. And I tell my, I have two sons who are just the center of my world. Um, and I, I tell them, if you ever decide to write a doctoral thesis, don't write it about building trust in hostile environments because (laughs) you find yourself in hostile environments. Maybe ice cream sundaes on the beaches in Bahamas, uh, something a little more fun. Yes. Um, But I started to learn how to apply these concepts. And then 2001, I'm involved in a car accident, another concussion, and I just can't recover. You know, the fatigue is too much. The, it's about my 10th concussion. And, and so I can't keep working 80 hours a week like I was at McKinsey. And so I find myself starting a small company called Trust Unlimited. And I've spent the last 20 years helping people understand what trust is, how it works, and most importantly, how to build it. Because we, we hear so many people talking about how important trust is and how little we have of it, but so few are actually giving us tips or tricks or approaches to actually do better, to build stronger relationships. And, you know, for your listeners out there, the overlap of my passions is trust and kids. I 
have worked with families. I was going to say, let's go ahead and let's, let's, let's gloat on those boys. Tell me about your two boys. Oh, my sons are amazing. Um, Thomas is 22 now and Alexander's 19. Uh, Thomas is actually in North Carolina at High Point University. Okay. Which seems like a great school. Um, Alexander's here with me. He's going to college here in Victoria. Um, and I have to tell you, I've used the model that I use with them their whole lives, and I've been really transparent with it. I have an incredibly close relationship with both of them, and they both have learned and thrive. Um, I think it future-proofs our kids, teaching them how to build stronger relationships, because the world is changing so fast. Um, I couldn't be prouder of them, and they're both just doing so well. And it's a difficult time to be that age. Um, you know, and, and they find themselves in challenging situations and they seem to do really well. Yeah. That's, and don't you learn so much? You know, I feel like when, when my kids were little, my girls are in their late twenties now. Okay. But when they were, I just feel like I'm so much more of a human just watching them be these magnificent people. Yeah. 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 They're, it's not supposed to work this way, but they're great role models for us. They are. And inspirations, you know, mine just, they, they just, they blow my mind just, you know, on a yeah. regular basis, but yeah. So let's talk about how you're using that trust model in those, those families that didn't have that that background of trust. Cause I think I cut you off when you were starting to launch yeah. into that. No, no, it's um, a lot of times I'll talk with parents and, and on my website, uh, uh, trustunlimited.com, there's an article in the blog section about trust and parenting. Um, I talk a lot about trust as a relational approach rather than a command and control style of parenting. And I think it's critical. Um, as our kids get older, they need to separate from us to become the amazing human beings they're going to be. And the more we try to control them, the harder that is for them and the more damage it does to the relationship when they actually manage to separate. And if they don't manage to separate, we, we set them up really well to be controlled by whoever comes along next. So I have always focused on creating a relational approach with my sons doesn't mean I don't hold them accountable. It doesn't mean that I don't have standards for them, but I start with a relentlessly positive story about them. Mm. And that helps me interpret what goes on for them through a lens that's more biased in their favor. And when my oldest was 12, he looked at me one day and he said, dad, even when you're upset with me, I know it's about what's best for me. It's not about what's easiest for you or you're, you know, proud or whatever. It's about me. And once they have that narrative in their heads, it gives us so much grace. Yeah. One of my greatest teaching moments for myself as a mother was my daughter's just probably around that, that 12 age mark and she walked in and asked me could she do something 
and I was in a terrible, I just in a terrible relationship with her father. And Mm. we had just had a horrible conversation. And so, you know, she comes trotting in her beautiful, jolly self and, you know, asked me this question and I just, you know, flat out said no. And that goes against everything that I'd always done as a mother is I always, I never said no without meaning it. I never said yes without meaning it. I wanted to make my word the truth. I didn't want to, and they had the opportunity if they felt like I didn't know what I was, you know, if if they needed to present another side to it, but I, and she just fell to pieces right in front of my eyes and, you know, marched upstairs and I'm still in myself, you know, so mad, so angry, so lost, you know, what am I going to do? Where, where am I going? And then all of a sudden it hit me and I went upstairs and just like got on my knees. I'm going to cry. Um, I just got on my knees and I just, you know, apologized. And I said, what I said had nothing to do with you. You know, it was a hundred percent the space that I was in, in that moment. And, you know, give me like half an hour to get myself together and we'll revisit what you want to do. And like the look that she gave me in that moment is one that I'll carry with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. I realized that you know i i was her her source for under you know translating the world around her yeah. and when i stomped on her dream you know she's that's that sets the stage for so much else and so everything that i looked at from the day forward was just slightly different because of me, you know, putting my ego in a box and setting it aside and saying, this is what I yeah. need to do for her. What a powerful moment, because you also revealed to her that you're not perfect. Yeah. Right. And you role model for her how to handle that when she makes a mistake. Yeah. And we do so little of that. It feels like whether we're leaders or parents or partners. And one of the challenges that I'm presenting to leaders now is to lead with imperfections. Mm. to let people know that you're not perfect. And, you know, the, the way that I used to handle it, I still handle it with my sons is if I feel like I messed up, I say, you know what? I don't think I handled it the way I would have liked to. If I had a chance to do it over, I think I'd try it this way. And it gives them that glimpse of, Hey, I'm not perfect. And that's okay. You don't have to be perfect either. I, I'll tell you my favorite story with my youngest. Um, I was working with a woman named Allison Reese, who's a brilliant psychologist who, who works with children and families, does parenting work. And um, she was talking about traits, the fact that we have these different traits that we're born with, and they have both positive and negative aspects to them. And it's usually not completely within our control. It's part of who we are. And so my youngest is funny and insightful and engaged and empathetic because he's highly distractible, Mm. which means he's also always late. (laughs) And so he was in middle school and, uh, you know, 
he's particularly late. I'm I'm there to pick him up after school. And it was after his mother and I had, had gone our separate ways. And so I got limited time with him. So it felt precious. And he was later than normal, right? Like all the other kids have come out of the school and the teachers have left and the janitor's trying to lock up and he finally comes <laughs> wandering along. And I'm, I'm leaning against this tree waiting for him. And I'm thinking, he's late. And, and I'm frustrated. But I have, I have a choice right now. I can either be angry with him and upset and yell at him for being late, which is what everyone's doing. And it's not changing the behavior. It's not intentional, right? This is part of who he is. Or I can accept him for all that he is and love him for everything that he is. And he finally comes trudging up to me and his head's down and his feet are dragging and he's just the picture of abject misery, right? Uh-huh. And he says to me, I'm sorry, I'm late, Dad. And I looked at him and I said, buddy, you're worth the wait. Aww. And I said, whoever comes next can wait. No one's more important than you. And the, it's like that moment you talked about with your daughter. It was a transformational moment in our relationship, that level of acceptance, that level of love and appreciation for him and for all that he is was such a huge moment for him and for me. And one of the topics I talk about is benevolence, having someone's best interest at heart. And it was in that moment that I, I wanted him to know without a doubt that I loved him no matter what. And so he had to feel that benevolence for me. And, and, you know, when I work with families, I'll say to them, who here has their kid's best interest at heart? And all the hands go up. And I say, how many of your kids would say that? And it's about a third. It's somewhat hesitant, right? Because a lot of times we're doing things that we think are in somebody's best interest, but we haven't included them in the conversation. Right. And we're thinking for our kids, we're thinking about tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 10 years down the road, right? We don't engage in behaviors that are good for us 10 years down the road, right? And so- Right, 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 yeah. And they're thinking about right now, right? And so we have to help them be successful in the moment to earn the right to talk about down the road. Yeah, and you and I were- raised in the generation where especially growing up in the south growing up as a you know I was like a pretty little blonde thing so everything was um appearances were far more important than what was on the other side of it and right washing away those beliefs of the only time that you can learn to trust yourself is when you, you know, you can't trust anybody else until you can trust yourself Yeah, and you can't trust yourself when every single thing you do is more about the facade than it is about what's inside. Because I always say I became a, a master chameleon, you know, I could be anything anybody wanted or expected of me. And I was really proud of that because it got me a long way. You know, it got me great jobs. It it got me every job I ever applied for. It got me Mm -hmm. a good salary at every job. I, you know, it, there's, it got me 
elected to president of everything and every society I was ever in. And yeah, it just left complete sense of emptiness. And, you know, you can't make decisions from a place where there is no self-trust and then you don't know where to go to get the help you need. And I think I really, really struggled when I got moved into those leadership roles because I didn't trust myself. And so no one was telling you how to be. And no one was telling me how to be. And how could I inspire trust among the people who I was supposed to lead if I was only, you know, projecting? Right. Well, I I felt that I primarily got by on my looks until I turned six. (laughs) 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 And then after that, it was... It was a hard slog. Um, so, you know, our, our lives teach us things if we're willing to pay attention. And you're right that for me, that would be integrity, right? Is, is having a strong set of beliefs and acting in consistency with those. And I talk about different levers we can pull to build trust with other folks. Benevolence is one of them. Integrity is another. It's that sort of do I follow through on my commitments? Do my actions line up with the values that I express? Mm. And if we're a chameleon, we become really hard to predict. Right. And particularly for, you know, when I used to work with, uh, in group homes with young kids in care and those kinds of things, I needed to be overwhelmingly consistent. Mm. They needed to be sure about how I was going to behave. If I said something, it had to happen. And it taught me a lot about being careful about how I phrase things, being careful about what I committed to, committing to my effort rather than outcomes because I didn't always have control over outcomes. Right. And I, I could promise my actions, not how other people were going to act or react. So I know we've 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 tickled across the surface of this, but why don't we have more trust in the world? Like, how do you distill that down and explain that? Okay. So here's how trust works. Trust is the willingness to make ourselves vulnerable when we can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. There's an element of uncertainty and vulnerability in that definition. And for me, when we're deciding to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The first is, How likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty? The second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability? And so we have uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. We each have a threshold of risk that we can tolerate. If we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. And so that means we need to understand if we want to build trust, where does uncertainty come from? How do we take steps to reduce it? Where does vulnerability come from? How do we take steps to help people manage it? And so in early exchanges, early relationships, uncertainty is fairly high. That means that we can't tolerate a whole lot of vulnerability. As that uncertainty goes down, as that relationship gets deeper, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate gets bigger. And in really deep relationships, we've got just this tiny sliver of uncertainty and a huge range of vulnerability we can tolerate with that other person. If we think about what's been going on in the world, vulnerability hasn't really gone down. 
but uncertainty's bouncing all over the place. Right. So we don't really know what the rules are anymore. We don't really know uh, who's who we should believe, who we should listen to. Um, we've got people in the world actively increasing our sense of vulnerability, making us feel more vulnerable than we really are. So that our our ability to tolerate uncertainty has actually gone down. And if I'm getting someone to trust me, I'm asking them to be just a little bit more vulnerable than they already are. And that's incredibly hard when the uncertainty is so high. And so for us to build more trust, we'd actually need to get better at handling uncertainty, better at understanding our vulnerabilities and taking steps to reduce those. And if we think about, you know, a lot of your listeners, you told me a lot of them are moms or um, or women navigating the world with all the, the uncertainties that's, that have come from it. I never feel more vulnerable than when it comes to my kids. Right. And the uncertainty that I can tolerate there is very low. And it's why some of us cling so tightly to them, mm-hmm. right? We try to monitor them. We try to manage them. We try to control them because it helps us reduce our uncertainty. The other path is for us to actually get them to talk to us. And I say to my sons, I said, I'm never more vulnerable than when it comes to you. I can't handle a lot of uncertainty. You've got to tell me what's going on. Oh, and so they do. Phrase that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I do is I systematically walk people through. There are 10 levers we can use to build trust. And four of them lie within uncertainty. Two of them lie within vulnerability. And after we've made the trust decision, there's a perceived outcome. We all interpret the world through stories. And so you and I can have exactly the same experience, but have a dramatically different perception of what just happened. UNC wins, UNC yeah. wins. And so we have, we have different narratives or different perspectives on what a good outcome looks like, unless we, take the time to develop a shared understanding. And we can interpret that outcome as either positive or negative, and we can attribute it to either the individual or the situation. In the middle of all this is our emotional states. So 99% of trust research treats people like rational actors. Mm, that's, that's, we talk a lot about emotions on this podcast. Right. And so people just aren't. Right, the, and the, the stronger our emotions become, the less rational we are. You know, you think about the story with your daughter. You were having a, a profoundly emotional reaction, and you were struggling to contain it. And she happened upon you at the wrong moment, and your rational mind wasn't working. And thankfully, it did. Right, and you were able to go back and role model for her and say to her, "I need thirty minutes to calm down." That's a heroic feat. That's a great story. And a lot of times when we look at these long-term disputes, these hostile environments, they're profoundly emotional. And we're taking these rational approaches to try to resolve them, and we get no traction. We have to try to reset those emotional states first. And so I systematically walk people through the 10 different levers they can pull. 
And, you know, uncertainty comes from two places. It comes from us as individuals and it comes from the context that we're embedded in. And so, um, we sometimes trust people without knowing anything about them. You know, I, I give the example of the doctor's office, right? You go to a doctor's office, doctor comes in, says, take off your clothes, and you do, right? right? I've tried that in other places. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work. But it didn't work so well. Yeah. So, and I say to people, hey, I'm a doctor. But <laughs> still, not so good, right? Right, right. <laughs> and so if we just took that example and moved it, the same two people, same conversation, dressed the same way, moved it from a doctor's office to a gas station restroom. It goes from credible to creepy in a heartbeat. Yeah. Right? Right. And so context is- As it should. As it it should. Yeah. Yeah. The context (laughs) has moved, right? Right. And so we can actually reduce people's uncertainty by explaining our context, by telling them how we're constrained and giving them a sense of what our future actions will look like because they get a sense of- what rules we're playing by. I talk about it as the rules of the game. And there are laws and regulations and there are, so those are formal mechanisms of social control, but there are also informal ones, things like reputation and relationships and values and norms. And so it's why we sometimes struggle with, with some of the diversity and inclusion stuff because we're not sure what rules everyone's playing by. And so at the start, it heightens our uncertainty a little bit. Um, completely normal, right? And and people from other countries were not sure what their values and norms are. And so, you know, we can either feel bad because we don't understand the rules that they're playing by, or we can just understand, hey, we may play by different rules. Let's actually figure that out. Um, and then for, for the individual components, there's three levers. There's benevolence, integrity, and ability. Benevolence is, do you have my best interest at heart? Integrity is, will you act in a way that's consistent with the values you express? And do you follow through on your commitments? And abilities, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And we all have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. So for those who are not so good, they have a lever that they pull. Usually it's the ability lever, right? Like I have these kinds of credentials, this sort of background, this history. And we pull it over and over again. I just hope it lines up with the problem that we're facing. Those who are better have multiple levers. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. Mm. And so what I do is I show people the, the 10 levers and I get them to practice pulling them. And I give them tips and tricks about here's how you pull that lever. So I'm hoping... Yeah. that all of this is covered in your book. I, yeah. So I wrote the book just in case I get hit by a bus. I don't want what I know to go away. <laughs> um, and I really want to share it with the world as broadly as I can. Um, I was having these profound moments with with clients and with students, and and I felt like I was dropping grains of sand in the ocean. And the book is an attempt to get other people to come alongside and pick up great big rocks mm. to make a huge splash. Cause we can, we can get better at building trust. We can get better at building stronger relationships. I've seen it too often. 
you know, I, I worked with a dad. One of my students was a dad who was alienated from his sons. They were three and five. And I was teaching in Luxembourg. He'd been away working in Brazil for most of their lives. And he said to me, I don't know what to do. I'm terrified. And I do the wrong thing every time. And he said, you know, I, I lose my temper. I get frustrated. They're scared of me. And he said, I think the relationship's broken forever. And as a teacher, I got all my students to apply the model to a real life relationship. And he chose to apply it to his two sons. And at the end of the course, his final paper said, it's completely changed. My children run to me. They throw themselves on me. They tell me they love me. They fight over who gets to sit next to me at dinner. Complete change. And I've seen that impact multiple times, and I really want to share it as broadly as I can. That's so beautiful. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you this. I, we talk a lot about intuition and I feel like there's a component to trust, especially for myself that comes from that place of intuition. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I bring it back to is I do, I, not to the level of you, but I do have terrible eyesight mm. and they didn't diagnose it until I was probably in first grade. Uh, my sister always tells the story of when I came home with my glasses for the first time and I announced that the trees actually had leaves. You know, <laughs> I always thought they looked exactly like you draw them as a little kid, you know, these big gloppy, gloppy things. So, um, and I always thought that my sensitivity to both color, which I, I, I pick up energy from color, but then also situations and people and, and the way things move and the tensions between people and the tensions between people in their space, you know, as an interior designer, but I, I feel like all of that comes through on a place that's not necessarily cognitive. Because mm. you feel like between, you know, in your first story, I, I was really drawn to those moments when you had to function beyond what's your, you know, what your brain had the ability to function, but then also knowing that in that level of uncertainty, knowing at some point you wouldn't be able to see because right. we do pick up on, you know, body language is, is, is something that we absolutely. So I was just thinking, you know, having a conversation with somebody and not, you know, having that ability even to read right. the body language, that's, that's got to be really, really hard, but also play a strong role in the way that you feel into a situation. It really does. And, you know, I, I agree with you that there is, there's definitely something that goes on there because, um, for some reason, generally people feel comfortable with me and part of it may well be that I, you know, I wander the world with my guide dog, Drake, mm -hmm. who's the director of goodness for my company, the DOG, um, and we have such positive experiences of the world. People are friendly and warm and welcoming and want to be helpful. And that's not everyone's experience. And I experienced that even before Drake, where I would, you know, interact with someone and I would notice a change in their behavior from how they had treated someone just prior to me or just after me. Um, 
there is something going on there. And, you know, when I, I played junior hockey and I played college hockey and um, my sight was declining, but I, I could see the players. And so I actually adapted, right? Because I wasn't watching the puck all the time. Mm. And when I was in college, my coach said to me, he goes, you're 6'3", you're 200 pounds, you're leading the league in scoring by a lot. I said, how is it that you're always wide open in front of the net? And I said, I just go to open ice. Like, it just seems so obvious to me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like There's this pattern going on and I, I'm aware of it. And um, it's the same with people. There's, there's a certain amount of hygiene that we engage in. It's hard for people to trust one another right now, which means we have to go first. Mm. It means we have to be a little bit vulnerable first. And that's that piece around leading with imperfections or acknowledging that we're not perfect. You know, being just a little bit vulnerable first to kick off a norm of reciprocity, to make people go, oh, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. I always give my husband a hard time because, yeah, he, he thinks everyone's an idiot. He thinks everybody doesn't know what they're doing. And so that's all he experiences in the world. And right. I think the opposite, you know, I, when I drive, there's rarely traffic. I rarely get stuck anywhere. Mm. I, I rarely have bad customer service experiences. We you know, right. hardly ever go out to a restaurant and have issues. And I just, I just feel like it's the energy you bring to it. A lot of times. Yeah, I agree. And even when people are having a hard time, you know, we can still break that cycle for them. Um, and, you know, I, I think we should have a little more Drake in the world because he has such a positive story about everyone we meet. Yeah. He's like, you and I are going to be friends. And he's, <laughs> he's just he's so happy to meet everyone. Um, if we had that, you know, because we interpret the world through stories, a more positive story makes the world a little easier to get through and makes it a little less frustrating. No, I agree a hundred percent. Oh, Daryl, this has been wonderful. So one last question before we wrap and I, you know, we share with everybody how to get in touch with you and all those good things. Right. If your eight year old self, could see you now what would he be so proud of so enamored mm. by uh the relationship with my sons mm. i didn't have the best relationship with my parents um and i was determined to get that right and i have such a profoundly positive relationship with my sons um, and we are mutually, we've got a mutual ad adoration society. We both, we all sort of appreciate one another and love one another. That's the best gift I could have ever given myself. Mm. Oh, you can make me cry all over again. <laughs> that was beautiful. Oh gosh. So how can we find you where all the plays and just um 
everything will be available on the website page is in her eyes podcast.com forward slash episode 101. Um, everybody will be able to find it there, but go ahead and tell everybody how to get into your world. So my website is trustunlimited.com and you can find the book there. There's also a masterclass there. Uh, it's about three hours in length, five minute segments. So it's easy to kind of take in bite-sized chunks. Um, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Daryl Stickle. And they can also email me, daryl at trustunlimited.com. Fantastic. Oh, Daryl, thank you. This has been an absolute joy. And I know our listeners, especially, I, I mean, we have, we have both, we have, we have leaders and we have moms, we have parents. I know everyone will get so much out of this conversation. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. There were so many beautiful moments to take away from this conversation. And I love how those takeaways are actionable with a formula that we can look at and apply to whatever situation that we're in. I love how they're emotional and connect to those areas within ourselves where we might find challenges or joy or whatever we're experiencing in the moment. We can look at that emotional component and we can apply it to the trust we want to build within our relationships and it could be the relationships with the people we work with the relationships with our family the people that we love the most in the world and even our relationships with ourselves Daryl's words start with a lens that's more biased in their favor really stuck with me and I I feel like you know with our children we can start start in that place and often we do but whether our ego jumps in the way or our own belief systems or that aspect of you know control that pops in there that might be a fragment of the way that we were raised or we were brought up how that inserts itself in there it takes away that beautiful ability to to see through that lens and how often do we apply that rule to ourself that's one of my biggest takeaways from this conversation it's easier for me sometimes to see other people through that beautiful lens than it is to see myself and that's something that I'm trying to work on I love how Daryl points out the components of trust and his definition that it's the willingness to make ourselves vulnerable when we can't predict how someone else is going to behave. There's so much wrapped up in that and he did such a beautiful job of of all of the building blocks that make that statement true the trust formula, the relationship between 
the perceived uncertainty and the perceived vulnerability. I really enjoyed applying that principle to every conversation that I've been having lately since I had this interview with Daryl. And I love how, lastly, he really empowered us to be able to reduce people's uncertainty, the people that we're in a relationship with, the people that we're interacting with, by explaining our own context, by explaining where we're coming from so that it makes sense to them. And having that level of empathy to see them within their own context, to be able to mitigate our level of our level of uncertainty. So I'd love to hear how this resonated with you, my friends. You can head over to the community space, like I mentioned at the beginning, and let's talk about trust. Let's talk about where it's lacking. Like what relationships do we need to build more trust in? What what areas can we find? Can we apply this formula? Can we start to move those levers that Daryl talked about. So I highly encourage you to grab his book um, because like I said in the beginning, we are all leaders in some form or fashion in some place in our life. So thank you, my friends, for being here today. It has been my pleasure to have this conversation with Daryl and bring it to you because if we want the world to be a better place, you know where we have to start. We have to start here. So take care. Thank you for joining me here today on the In Her Eyes podcast. If you heard something today that resonated or helped you move forward on your design vision, please head over to the platform you get your podcasts and subscribe. And it would mean the world to me for you to leave me a rating and review. The complete instructions for doing that are on the In Her Eyes podcast website. That's inhereyespodcast.com forward slash review. And while you're there, be sure to grab my bedroom project planning workbook. It's the step-by-step guide to designing a room on any budget that truly supports your needs, your style, your habits, and you or your daughter will love coming home to, whether you're seven or 77. And it's my gift to you for tuning in. And if you have an idea for a podcast episode, something that you're struggling with, or something that you'd like to hear more about, please fill out the form on the bottom of the page. I personally read every single submission. If it's something that I feel confidently that I can speak to and help you with, I'll absolutely create something that will help you out. And if it's something that I feel like someone else can guide you better, I will guide you to that person, I promise. Have a beautiful day, my friend. Until next week.